thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. You're listening to The Healthy Exception with your host, Rachel Favilla. Hello, lovely ones, and welcome to The Healthy Exception, the podcast for teenagers choosing to be the healthy exception to the unhealthy rule. I'm your host, Rachel Favilla, and thank you so much for trusting me with your time and your ears today and for tuning in. And today on the show, I'm very excited because I've got one of Australia's leading sports nutritionists, Steph Lowe, with me to chat. Um, Steph is an author, a speaker, a sports nutritionist, an athlete herself, and she's super passionate about simplifying nutrition, getting real and current research, debunking food myths, and educating people on how to just eat real food. And it's an absolute pleasure to have her on today. And I really wanted to get her on because um, I've been interested in sports nutrition just from my own personal point of view for a while now. And I love listening to Steph's, po- oh, sorry, she's also a podcaster. She has a wonderful podcast um, also on the we- well on the wellness couch that's um, very much about just nutrition in general, but she does have that more sports nutrition background. And I've been doing my own sort of research and learning from her for a while now. Um, but this semester at uni, I have, I'm studying sports nutrition and I am disgusted by how still in mainstream universities and also more alternative ones like Endeavour College of natural health where I go, how backwards and just messed up the, some of the guidelines seem to be and how I, I would almost say some of the guidelines and advice we're told to give is quite dangerous and just um, it, it, it starts to cause more problems and sickness for athletes and doesn't benefit them long term. It might benefit them in the short term, but definitely not long term. And so I wanted to get Steph on today to talk about you know, how can we approach sports nutrition and fueling for um, events or just, you know, keeping our bodies healthy so that we can remain fit? How can we do it in a way that's going to be sustainable and make sure that we don't run into, you know, digestive problems or any other sort of issue further down the track? So thank you so much for coming on today, Steph. I'm really looking forward to picking your brain about a few things. Hi, Rach. It's great to be here. Lovely. Um, well, let's jump in with the first question. Um a lot of my listeners may be, or I'm going to assume, uh, you know, quite health conscious, probably quite fit, um, and they may be part of a sporting club or maybe going to the gym under the care of a personal trainer, and they might be getting certain nutritional advice from these well-meaning coaches and PTs. Um, could you maybe set the scene? What are they ge- like generally speaking? What are the cu- what's the current sort of world of sports nutrition look like? What's the advice? What would most of my listeners probably be quite familiar to hearing? Yeah, absolutely. So from a day to day sense, when we look at the conventional guidelines, they're very carbohydrate driven. So you know when we look at even our national food guidelines around building your plate, we know that. You know, Australia is definitely recommended to fill their plate with these whole grains and cereals, and that message is further exaggerated in athletes. You know, we see and we have seen over the last five decades that as a group, athletes are encouraged to essentially overdo that that macronutrient, so overdo the carbohydrates, and quite significantly, the focus has been on refined carbohydrates, so mm. food that comes out of a packet or a box. And a lot of athletes actually don't know that whole food carbohydrates um, are you know, the same macronutrient but 
are very different from a performance standpoint. So, you know, when I talk about carbohydrates as a whole, I'm very careful to distinguish between those two subgroups. So refined carbohydrates, which we're trying to reduce, if not remove, but then whole food carbohydrates, which do have their place Mm. on an athlete's plate. And then when it comes to the field, whether it's a team sport or our fueling requirements for individual athletes, again, very, very dogmatic in the carbohydrate recommendations. So, you know, we see team sports having things like Gatorade for a duration that is 60 to 90 minutes, all the way up to our endurance athletes who are told to undertake principles like carbohydrate loading, which is the 7 to 10 grams of carbohydrate per kilogram of body weight per day, which is a absolutely huge and ridiculous volume of food. Mm. And then certainly when it comes to um, training and racing, our conventional guidelines are the 60 to 90 grams of carbohydrates per hour, and they're encouraged to obtain that from things like Gatorade and sports gels, which are essentially refined sugar masquerading with, um, you know, some proposed performance benefit, which has just been driven by industry over the years. Yeah, it's, oh, it's just like when you look at it like that, you just, you know, that you said about the volume of food and I sort of, you know, well, we both of us see food as medicine and, you know, it's always about looking after yourself, your healing and shoving that amount of food down your throat just doesn't make sense from a, you know, um, a health standpoint. And um, I can't, well, I, don't know, I can believe that it's gone on like this for this long because that's the way it is. But um, yeah, it would be great to sort of give my listeners a bit more of an idea about what okay if this is what we've been told um what what's an alternative like what do you do with your athletes um that differs from this approach and what results are you getting with them yeah absolutely so thank you for asking because this is something i'm really passionate about because the you know the national guidelines and the recommendations to athletes have been very carbohydrate driven which we've discussed and what that creates is essentially a sugar burning metabolism so you know unless you've been living under a rock you'll know that sugar is highly inflammatory and that can't make sense from a health point of view especially from a performance and athletic longevity point of view so my goal for all of my athletes and certainly my audience is that we move away from the conventional guidelines and the associated sugar burning metabolism and that we teach our body to become a fat-burning machine. Other terms we use are to become fat-adapted, and certainly what that means is that you're metabolically efficient and, and very flexible. So let me break that down for you. So one of the biggest benefits of being metabolically flexible is that, yes, you can utilize carbohydrates, which are important for periods of high intensity, um, But what we want to be prioritizing is an efficient metabolism where we can burn fat for fuel. So most athletes should be doing, you know, a a majority of low-intensity aerobic training to build their engines, and those sessions should be fueled on fat. But they simply won't be if you're consuming our recommended guidelines of carbohydrates because we know that as soon as you're consuming excess carbohydrates, the fat storage hormone insulin is increased, which will 
blunt any ability to oxidize fat for fuel. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it does to me anyway. I hope it does to my listeners. Um, uh, how, uh, I suppose, yeah, I, th- I think that would make sense. We'll, we'll talk more about it as we go on yeah, anyway. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So there's fat adaptation. So um, could we maybe talk about like how you would go about um, starting to get fat, ap- fat, um, fat adapted and also knowing like because I, th- I think there'd be some people going, but I eat heaps of carbs and it works really well for me and I get really great results. Like why would someone um, be, I've, we've talked about this a little bit already, but what would be the motivating factor for someone that's not actually experiencing all that many disadvantages that they notice with their current approach and why would they switch over to fat, ad- fat adaptation and how could they start to change their metabolisms over to being a bit more flexible? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, firstly, I'll clarify that, you know, everyone is really individual. So Mm. we have to be mindful not to get caught up in either what we read on the internet or what someone else is doing. So you can become fat adapted eating 150 grams of carbohydrates per day if you're young and active and you don't have any underlying metabolic disease. So that's really important because 150 grams is, you know, adequate carbohydrates. You can still eat things like our starchy veggies, so potato and sweet potato. You can still have your two serves of fruit fruit a day. You might be having some rice and quinoa. But the goal is it's not the bulk of your food. It's essentially what you add to the plate last. Mm. Now, the sort of spectrum is that if you're, say, let's say sedentary, overweight and have some underlying metabolic disease, then you need far less carbohydrate. That's going to be closer to a ketosis type model, definitely less than 50 grams of carbohydrates per day. So the spectrum is quite sliding and and most individualized by activity levels and metabolic health. Mm. So that's really important to, to keep in mind. Um, but, you know, the overarching goal is that to become fat adapted, you will need to manage your carbohydrate intake. As I said in the previous question, if you're eating too many carbohydrates, you'll spike the hormone insulin and you'll switch off fat burning. So the reverse of that is to eat lower carbohydrate to keep your insulin lower to teach your body to burn fat for fuel. So that's the macronutrient carbohydrate that we need to manipulate the most. Um, And, you know, what we teach our athletes is certainly, firstly, that whole food carbohydrates need to be the preference, Mm -hmm. Um, but to understand when they actually need to consume this fuel. Yeah. So we know that carbohydrates are our predominant fuel source in periods of high intensity. So say you go to a soccer training session where you're doing lots of short, sharp intervals. Maybe you're at the gym lifting weights where you've got those heavy weights which utilize that anaerobic or that high-intensity response. Maybe you're a runner and you're doing a track session of an evening. So these sessions are all examples of high-intensity sessions where you're using the carbohydrate that you store in your muscles for fuel. So there is then, therefore, a replenishment requirement in the post-training meal. So the meal that you eat 
within the hour after those sessions should contain adequate carbohydrate for part of the recovery process. That's essentially the best time to eat the carbohydrates, whereas athletes, as we know, are told to eat them, you know, 24-7. So we've got to separate and in our mind understand how physiology works because if you're doing an aerobic session like a walk in the morning or an easy run or any sort of conversational pace, then that session doesn't require high amounts of carbohydrates post-training. So I think that's a really important distinction that we need to think about what our body needs, which yeah. is relative to the intensity of the previous session. Absolutely. It's a really good point. I love what you said at the start, how, um, you know, everyone's different. Someone who's young and metabolically fit can actually have, you know, quite a decent amount of carbs. Cause I think at the moment there is a ketosis and very low carb diets has become trendy. And like you said, you can get on the internet and you could almost, you know, you could read about a woman in her 40s who's, you know, insulin resistant and she's, you know, will lost all this weight doing a low carb diet and she's demonizing carbohydrates, you know, because for her, they're just, they're like, they are almost the devil. They don't work for her. But you could almost start to feel guilty and go, oh my God, I probably need to do that. And I love how you specified that. No, everyone is a bit more individual and people's carbohydrate tolerance does vary. I think that is a, an important point because we're not trying to demonize this macronutrient. It's still very important. It's just maybe not as dire as we've been educated to believe in all circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. And so just to sort of wrap up that last question, mm-hmm. how we become fat adapted, it's really about the order in which we build our plate. So from a day-to-day mm-hmm. point of view, we need to start building our plate with an abundance of non-starchy veggies. So these are, you know, our greens, but it's also important to eat the rainbow with foods like, you know, carrots and capsicums and mushrooms. Mm. And these are all carbohydrates, but they're very low in carbohydrate compared to starchy veggies and then, again, whole grains and cereals. Mm -hmm. But they are the most nutrient-dense food. So we definitely can't neglect our non-starchy veggies. No, definitely not. We'd get constipated (laughs) otherwise. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, we miss out on all our nutrients. But we definitely then need to look at quality protein, healthy fats in that order, and then it's the carbohydrates to the plate last. If you're at the higher end of the spectrum, so that 150 grams a day that I mentioned, or it's definitely that you look for complex carbohydrates in that post-training meal. Mm, beautiful. And once you've been doing this, um, and I'm saying this from personal experience, if you've been doing this sort of thing for quite a while, do you find um, with your athletes and with yourself and just um, even if they're not athletes but just general clients over time as their metabolism gets healthier and healthier, they have a little bit more leeway, like even if they haven't done a high-intensity um, training session but they still want, you know, some blueberries or a banana or some sweet potato. They can do it without, you know, going into full full on sugar burning. Do you find that there's still that leeway, especially the longer you're doing it? Absolutely. And I'm glad you mentioned that because, you know, the whole point of what you do when you start is that you're actually reversing any underlying carbohydrate intolerance. Mm. So, you know, unless you're very like young and metabolically healthy, most of us that have been following the food pyramid would have created a degree of carbohydrate intolerance. So that's reversible. And if you do go on to a, you know, an LCHF, a lower carbohydrate, higher fat approach, you will reverse that process, which then means, as you say, more leeway. So you kind of open up this health, this healthy metabolism or this metabolic health where you can then 
utilize carbohydrates more efficiently. So especially when you then choose whole food carbohydrates like fruit and starchy veggies, absolutely, you can definitely tolerate more the more healthier you become. And that's really important because nutrition is not static. I think no. too often we're used to a maybe a program we've been written or a program we've found via Dr. Google or a friend's program and we just do the same thing 24-7. You know, what I really want everyone to to realize is how different our requirements are day to day, especially mm. if we factor in things like our exercise output yeah, and also month to month and year to year. Our body is in a constant state of change, so our requirements will always be changing as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a fantastic point because I think, and that I guess it gets back to that whole argument of it's great to have the science and it's great to have the background and know how to build your place, but there has to always be, I believe, with nutrition and exercise, listening to your body from day to day. Like, you know, I have some days where all I want to do is like eat salmon and obviously I need omega-3s and protein and then days where I just want to eat vegetables all day and clearly I'm needing antioxidants. And if I were to go, no, because I need this amount of protein and I need like, you know, I just wouldn't be getting everything I need for that day. So, yeah, I think that's a fantastic point. Um, all righty. You've actually covered a lot of the questions just within other questions, which is great. Um, I suppose what, how would someone, um, what are some of the easiest ways to know that your metabolism is starting to shift? What sort of um, cues could you take from your own body? And are there going to be any slumps of like when your um, body's changing over and going, okay, I used to be a full-on glucose burner and now I'm switching over to fat burning. Is there that can some people experience that interim phase where their body's sort of not sure which fuel source to use and they get lethargic? And um, could you maybe just talk us through that process? Yeah, so I think the signs that you notice can be quite interesting and, and quite life-changing for a lot of people because, you know, there's a lot of myths in the nutrition space and one of the big ones is that we have to eat every two hours and mm. the message that's wrapped up in that is certainly that, you know, that's the way to achieve a fast metabolism, which is actually very much a fallacy because if you're eating carbohydrates every two hours, you're very much a sugar-burning machine and that has a lot of like longer-term complications as well. So the biggest change that people notice almost straight away is their increased satiety. So satiety is that feeling of fullness that you should get from a meal and you most definitely get from a meal when it's very nutrient-dense and well-balanced with the macronutrients. So my clients and my athletes are very used to going four or five or even more hours without food, and that's not starvation. That's not an intentional restriction. That's simply a byproduct of improved blood sugar control. So I always say to my clients, you know, if you eat X and you're not hungry for five hours, you know you've done a really good job of balancing out that plate. And that's a really important individualization of things because that plate will look different for everybody and it will look different if it's post-training versus you know later in the evening or you know a, a nighttime meal when you have an exercise which in generally should be, in general should be smaller so I think you know we look at the satiety factor quite closely because you know again if you're sugar burning you're hungry all the time so you're bound by your appetite you're getting hangry so you're that hunger plus angry where you're not a very nice person to be around. You've always got to have a muesli bar in your school bag or um, backpack in case you're hungry. And it's this vicious cycle of 
by 3.30, you're needing to have, you know, more sugar or caffeine and you go around and around in circles being shaped by, you know, essentially the food choices that you've made. Absolutely. And that's a great point because I think you, you know, you start talking about this stuff and a lot of people will, you know, they'll glaze over, they'll shut down and they'll be like, I'm fine doing what I'm doing. Like, I think you're reading too far into this, like, you know, what I'm doing is working. But then, you know, like you like you said, they're hangry. They eat all the time. They're always hungry. But for them, that's normal. And because everyone around them is very similar, we sort of just go, oh, well, that's just the human body. We just need to do that. And that's what we've been conditioned to believe. So I love that you've brought up that point. Yeah, exactly. And usually, um, sorry to be sexist, but no, it's no, no, usually <laughs> the young, fit, fast males that yeah. are quite resistant because, you know, they they can get away with eating um, unhealthy foods or lots of refined carbohydrates. So my um, my goal is to teach them the long-term benefits as well. Mm. So, you know, we know that sugar is really inflammatory. We know that inflammation is the cause of chronic disease. So the choices you make in your youth set you up for longevity, both in the athletic space but also living longer and healthier. So even if you're fast and fit and lean but you're smashing the carbs, don't be naive to think that you're exempt from the health implications of high refined carbs and high sugar. We've got to look behind the scenes at what our body needs and certainly what it doesn't need. Hmm. Absolutely. Thank you so much for clarifying that. I was, you're not being sexist at all because when I was saying some people are resistant, I was thinking about my teenage male friends. That's so, that's absolutely fine. And we get the athletes all the time that, you know, they're winning their age group and they, like you said earlier, justify that they can get away with it. But it's really a game of Russian roulette. You know, as yeah. you get older, if you haven't changed your ways, you're mm. far more susceptible to metabolic dysfunction. So you can avoid all that by making great choices about what goes in your mouth today. Absolutely. And it's just such an important discussion to have, especially when there are mixed messages that you might get from the media or um, health promotion fields that sort of go, oh, we're not quite sure what's causing this massive spike in type 2 diabetes or metabolic syndrome. Hmm, let's just do another research study because we're still not quite sure what's going on there. And it's sort of like it's what we're doing when we're teenagers and, you know, like it's just but we're sort of exposed to go, oh, it's not our fault, We're not. it's not what we're doing, it's a genetic defect, it's, you know, it's this, that and the other. So to understand that, like, sure, there are other, definitely there's always multifactorial reasons, it's never just one thing, but diet has such a big role to play and, yeah, like you said, it's it's what you do now, but it's it's very tempting to be naive when you're getting away with it. So just to be aware and catch on to things earlier it's just so it's that's the whole reason I do this podcast is to what get people before they get sick before they get unwell before everything sort of goes downhill so thank you so much for Absolutely. having that conversation um yeah so could you maybe talk about though um because I think this is what puts people off a lot of the time when they do decide to get fat fat adapted is that you do generally go through that period where your body's not quite adapted to using fat yet, but you've sort of cut down on your um, glucose availability. And so you get maybe a, a few days or a week where you feel like quite lethargic. And for a lot of people, that's enough to put them off and go, no, it doesn't work for my body. It's just, yeah, clearly this isn't an approach I need to be using. And they go back onto the carbs and they feel better straight away because they've got their energy back. Could you maybe talk about this and how sometimes you need to go through just a few days of not feeling your absolute best before 
you actually get to that euphoric state where you've got satiety? Yeah, absolutely. So we call this the metabolic grey zone. And so you're exactly right. I mean, obviously you've been, this individual has been eating lots of sugars, high carbohydrate diet, and essentially they pull the plug on that fuel supply. It takes about four to seven days for your body to get good at burning fat. So those are the days where it can feel like you haven't got much fuel coming in. And the size of the reaction or how significant the the transition is, is always relative to what you've been doing. So unfortunately, if you've been having a lot of sugar, you will be also going through this detoxification phase at the same time. So it can be pretty ugly for some people. Uh, I'm not trying to scare you off. I think it's a good thing to go through that because A, you learn more about what your previous choices have been doing and maybe how addicted you were to foods um, that you otherwise didn't know about. But the shift is really powerful because, you know, when you know what's going on, like you're aware of the fact that you're going through that metabolic grey zone and you know that the end is near, then you're more likely to stick to it. Mm. And certainly, you know, after four to seven days, you wonder how you ever lived otherwise because that satiety and that blood sugar control and craving control and all the long-term benefits that we've been speaking of are right there in front of you and I think that's a fantastic place to arrive at. Yeah, absolutely. It, it definitely is, but I just thought it would be a good idea just to put it in because I know that that is like a major roadblock for a lot of people and yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, so I, what I love about when you um, talk, Steph, is that you say you know, everyone's an athlete. It's not just, I think often you hear the word athlete and you're thinking of, you know, the elite um, runners or the Ironman men or women um, and you're, or the Olympic swimmers and you sort of don't think of yourself who, you know, does a few gym sessions every um, a few times a week and walks most days. You don't think of yourself as an athlete when really you're exercising and so you are. Could you maybe um, talk about that and how the advice the stuff we're talking about today isn't just for athletes it's relevant for absolutely everyone just to stay I mean we've talked about that a bit but I love your um everyone's an athlete spiel if you could just talk about that a bit yeah absolutely so I mean we believe that everyone who moves is an athlete so hopefully that's all of your listeners yeah. and it's not about how fast you are or whether you're on the podium or not it's about the appreciation as to how important it is to make these real food choices to support the exercise and the athletic endeavours that you have. So, you know, that's irrespective of how good you think you are or are not. So I think that's what's really interesting. You know, at all of my seminars I'll say, all right, hands up who's an athlete. You'll get like, you know, six or seven people put their hand up. Um, and then you'll say hands up who exercises. And everyone will put their hand up and you'll see that big gap. And it's really just how we view ourselves. I think, you know, elite athlete is very different to the term athlete, right? Oh, so, yeah. you know, social sport, um, you know, running a couple of times during the during the week, gym, all of that is really, um, you know, where we can benefit from eating real food mm. and certainly having a really efficient metabolism because that's going to help you today with all of your health goals, but going to be the best decision you'll make for your long-term health. Yeah, beautiful. Um, so when we talk, like you talked about building your plate before and that I really I really love that and I love how your approach is 
lower carb, not low carb, and higher fat, not high fat. Can we? We've talked about the carb side of things and how that there's a spectrum there. Can we talk about fat for a bit? Because I know that a lot of um, teenagers, we've like people my age and even your age, um, not that you're old, like you're really still quite young as well, but <laughs> our generations that sort of, we've grown up with the low fat era. And so a lot of us just aren't eating very much fat at all. And so to start eating, it can actually be quite a shock to the system. Um, you know, what's roundabouts on an average day, and obviously this is going to differ for everyone, but what's your idea of higher fat? Because I know, again, like I said, with the whole ketosis thing being really popular, you know, some people are eating quite large amounts of fat. And for some people, for certain periods of time, obviously that works really well for them and they it's needed for healing, recovery, energy, whatever. Um, but I know that that's the ketosis version of high fat is not the same as just a lower carb, high fat approach. So what in a rough day, what sort of fat sources and how much in terms of serving sizes would you be looking at? Yeah, I think this is a really interesting question because it's going to be quite different for mm, everyone. Obviously, yeah. In a general rule, like I'll, I'll get more specific in a minute, mm-hmm. but in a general rule, we've got to think about our carbohydrate intake and our fat intake being a seesaw. So we don't want to have high-carb, high-fat. Mm-hmm. We definitely don't want to have low-carb, low-fat. No. <laughs> um, they've got to work you know, together on that seesaw. So if you are going to be eating say, less than 50 grams of fat a day, so you've got some underlying metabolic disease or you're quite overweight, um, so, you know, your carbs are less than 50, there's a lot more space on your plate and within your day to eat higher fat. So that could be, you know, 60 or 65% of your day. And that's a lot of fat. So especially for people that have come off a low-fat approach, you know, I, I, for most people, I wouldn't sort of have them start consuming that much because they simply would have too much fat phobia to get there. Mm-hmm. And then they would be that person that's trying to do low carb, low, low fat, which means not very much food and it's definitely not going to work yeah. <laughs> um, for more than a day or so. So that's really important to think about uh, when you're working with an individual as to sort of what their background is, how comfortable they are eating fats. Um, But again, the distinction with this macronutrient is to try and remind yourself where the food comes from. So our healthy fats like salmon, avocado, nut seeds, olive oil, they're all very clearly close to their natural state. I mean, obviously, olives have to get compressed into olive oil, but they're still, you know, minimal ingredients, very whole food in nature versus our trans fats like margarines and anything in deep fried food like we have to separate out those um two subgroups again because when you show someone that the foods that they've been avoiding and fearing for so long are from nature the penny can often drop as to how that food can't possibly be harming us and i think that's really important to discuss when we do speak to any audience that's you know like you said our generation who are have been exposed to that low fat dogma of the last five decades mm-hmm. so then we think about an athlete that's having 150 grams of carbohydrates a day they're obviously eating less fats because they're eating slightly more carbohydrates but they still need to be getting at least one whole portion with each meal. So a portion is something that gives you close to, you know, 30 grams of fat. So that's 30 grams of nuts, 30 mils of olive oil, 
30 grams of seeds, 30 grams of grass-fed butter, half a large avocado. You know, these sorts of foods need to be on in every meal. Mm-hmm. So at least one portion. If you're, you know, quite a large male that's obviously got a much higher calorie requirement for the day, you might need two portions with each meal. Yeah. But I think for most of your audience, Rach, we're looking at at least one portion, and that's really important because fats will help you burn fat. I definitely want you to remember that, but they Mm -hmm. will also keep you full. So they will manage your blood sugar control, your cravings, your ongoing food choices, not to mention that they're so nutrient-dense, full of all our fat-soluble vitamins A, D, E, and K. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you. That's that's a really good – I think that's going to help a lot of listeners – if, if they're a bit confused, they're like, yeah, okay, I'm like starting to accept that fats are good, but I'm still not sure what they're like, how to bring them into my diet. So thank you. That was very comprehensive. Um, wow. We've, you, you're so efficient. We've just covered like so much and given everyone so much information. Um, something I did want to um, touch on just before we sort of um, wrap up and if you've got anything else you'd like to add that I've forgotten to bring up Um, and it's a little it's sort of along the same lines but a little different but as a sports nutritionist I couldn't have you on here without um, asking you I know that again I'm going to be sexist now Um, could be girls but a lot of teenage boys are really into you know gains and getting big and taking protein powders and or you know those liquid brunch chain amino acid drinks or that are fluorescently coloured, all of that sort of stuff. Um, And maybe they're being actually told to by a coach or by a personal trainer and it's really cool and all their mates are doing it. And um, I don't look, you know, protein powders, the really good ones, the whole food ones can have their place for sure. But could we maybe get into a little bit of a discussion about um, that some of the dangers um, of just like the additives, the dangers of actually excessive protein intake and who needs them and who could probably just get protein from a really well-planned diet yeah exactly i think um what's really important to start with is to think about where you can prioritize whole food so (laughs) if you've done your training and you're going home to have you know dinner which will have your either your animal protein or your lentils and legumes and chickpeas um, or you're going home for breakfast and you're having an omelet then you absolutely don't need to put more protein in a shake because, A, you know, you want to be choosing whole food wherever possible, mm-hmm. um, and, and, B, your body can't tolerate that much protein. So yeah. having a shake and then going home and having an omelette is an absolute waste. Mm-hmm. So that's something to be really mindful of. And then when we talk about protein powder, like I think they have their place in a convenient sense or mm-hmm. if, you know, you're unable to get to – Um, your next meal straight away or maybe you're having a smoothie and you do want to increase the nutrient density and satiety but the choice that you make is really important so you know we recommend a brand such as bear blends because they're made on grass-fed whey or they've got beautiful vegan options um, no artificial sweeteners no other um, carbohydrates or refined ingredients and that is really really important to make a purchasing decision in regards to because again we're looking to eat you know food as close to its natural state as possible so whilst of course the protein has been created into a powder um it's it can be an exception to the rule when you make a really really good choice now when it comes to branch chain amino acids i mean the reality is there's not many brands that aren't full of the artificial sweeteners which are 
one ingredient that we definitely need to avoid. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would make sure that, again, you're purchasing from a brand that cares about your health. So Protein Suppliers Australia do some BCAAs that don't have any artificial sweeteners. So that's a definite possibility. Um, but only, you know, a small percentage of people would need something like that. Our endurance athletes who are working on their fasted training, so going out for breakfast and really trying to extend that duration to work on their metabolic efficiency may benefit from a serve of brand chain amino acids so that they don't start to break down their muscle. Um, but shorter durations like gym sessions and, and say, you know, you're there for 45 minutes, it's highly unlikely you'll be catabolic during that session. You won't be breaking down muscle. So as long as you're eating adequate protein every day, there's rarely a space where you'll need a supplement like that. Beautiful. That's a, that's a great way. And um, just, you know, in um, general, what like could you just give my listeners an example of what um, your best food sources of your branch chains are? Yeah, I mean, so branched-chain amino acids are found in anything that's a protein. That's what a lot of people don't understand. They think it's this this magic um, powder mm. when really you're, you're consuming that you're consuming branched-chain amino acids with every nearly every meal. You you at least should be. Yeah. <laughs> so it's found in foods like meat, poultry, fish, eggs, cheese. Um, what else have we got? Obviously, your protein platter can change a branch mm-hmm. chain amino acids, mm-hmm. um, chickpeas, legumes, lentils. So, yeah, lots of foods that we should be building our plate with. Okay, beautiful. Are they in um, nuts and seeds if you combine different types as well? Or Yeah, yep. food combining will be really helpful in that instance. All right, beautiful. Thank you. I just did, yeah, I wanted to clarify because you're right. As soon as we isolate something, I think a lot of people go, oh, I have to take the supplement to get that. It's like, no, most, with the exception of a few supplements that aren't, contained naturally in food most things we are you know we should be able to get from food so that's a that's a great thing with meals right we we eat a combination of macronutrients whereas Mm. a lot of the time when we look at nutrition it's speaking about things on their own like even the GI um conversation the glycemic index you know you don't sit down to a bowl of rice by itself like you don't eat carbohydrates on their own or at least you shouldn't so Mm. You know, things change when you look at the combination of nutrients and that's how we eat. That's how we build our plate. So we do have to look at things that way. Absolutely. And I think that's so important because then that's the difference between someone fearing a food and going, oh my gosh, it's bad for me because it's high GI versus going that no worries, I'll just put some broccoli and chicken with it. And now it's a low GI meal. Like it's, you know, it's um, a lot more sustainable and makes food a lot more enjoyable, which, you know, as much as food is our fuel and it's here to nourish us, it is also here you know, for enjoyment and to share with people we love. So just to get that common sense approach into people is, I think, so important. And you've done such a good job of that today, Steph. Um, Thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's been a real pleasure having you on. Is there anything I've missed that you really would love um, my teenage listeners to know um, or if we covered enough? And, of course, you're welcome back anytime if you think of something else you'd like to discuss. Yeah, look, I think the main message is to keep it quite simple, like, you know, real food can be as beautiful as non-touchy veggies, protein, healthy fats, and whole food carbohydrates. I think it's really important to look for a way that you can enjoy food that obviously supports your health goals but isn't restrictive or deprivational and that we keep our sort of long-term and sustainable goals in mind. I think that 
there's too much discussion around quick fixes or magic pills or the latest diet, which can get mm. us caught up in always looking for something different. And it's not necessarily the case, you know. We can't lose sight of the fact that real food is the answer um, yeah. and that the, the individualization and learning to be intuitive as you learn more and trial new, new things like, you know, different um, amounts of carbohydrates, for example, to find your sweet spot is really, really powerful. So you've got to take some of that, you know, decision or some of those decisions into your own hands and mm-hmm. work out what works for you and what's a really healthy place to live. Yeah, that's a beautiful that's a beautiful place to finish, I think. Thank you so much, Steph. Um, where can my listeners find out more about you if they really love your approach and want to learn more from you? Absolutely, thank you. So our online hub is thenaturalnutritionist.com.au. There you'll find all our social media links, but on Instagram and Facebook it's The Natural Nutritionist and Twitter it is Nat Nutritionist. So I'd love you guys to stay in touch. Come over to social media and um, ask me any questions that you have. But, Rach, it's been so amazing to chat with you today. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, no, that's my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. And I can't recommend your podcast, The Real Food Real, more highly. It's uh, it's probably, not to put down any other podcast, but it's probably my favorite one to listen to each week. It's the, probably the one I consistently download no, no matter what. So oh, thank, thank you, you for, no, that's my pleasure. Thank you for putting the information out there and getting the conversation started. I do think, especially in Australia, you're one of the pioneers of fat adaptation and metabolic flexibility and the fact that you bring some of the world's leading experts um, to us every week on an audio recording is, you know, it's like having a university education without actually going to uni. It's it's beautiful. So thank you. Um, do you mind just, I'll say a proper goodbye like really quickly at the end. I'll just do a quick wrap up now if you just stay on the line. Sure. Okay, beautiful. So thank you everyone for listening in. I hope that you've loved this podcast and it's, you know, um, given you a bit more to think about and maybe given you some aha moments. Um, You know, until next fortnight when I bring you another episode, just keep asking questions, being intuitive and staying open-minded and being a healthy exception. Okay, bye lovely ones. Catch you later. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst The Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of The Wellness Couch podcasts.